Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. The Lord has not called me to entertain you at all. He has called me to preach His Word. This is His Word, and these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a child of God, and you have prepared your heart and mind, you are eager to hear what the Lord of glory has to say to you, in spite of the infirmities of the speaker. You are not looking for entertainment. You are looking for the precious Word of God, opened and explained, so that you can understand it, and then obey it. That is my goal. Matthew chapter 25. We have a certain amount of time, and I want to cover the whole chapter. It only has three sections to it. There are two parables and one prophecy. All three are about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I am not a preterist. I can tell by looking at verse 31 that this coming of the Son of Man in glory with all His holy angels with Him and sitting upon the throne of glory is His second coming Because it tells me so. It tells me that He'll gather all nations before Him, not just the nation of Israel. It tells me that the consequences of this coming are the wicked being cast into eternal fire and the righteous being taken into heaven, the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. So, with that out of the way, we have three We have three sections to Matthew 25 warning us about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed hope of the believer. But it's also a thing to tremble before because at that time you'll give an account for your lives. And either you'll be ashamed at His coming or you'll be confident at His coming. And there's three warnings in this chapter, about preparing for that coming. A parable is an extended simile or metaphor. A simile is when we compare things. We use the words like or as. If I say I am hungry as a bear, that's a simile. I'm comparing myself to your thoughts of how hungry bears get. We use expressions like that. If I say, he can run like a deer, and I don't mean the tractor, I mean a deer. I mean we're talking about someone that can run very quickly because we're comparing the speed and lightness of foot of a deer to some man. Those are similes because they have the word as or the word like. Now a parable is not short like that, it's long. But these are both parables, they're extended similes, and you can tell by looking in the first verse, where it says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened. So we have a comparison here. We have a simile that is specifically told to us in the word likened. If we come to verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man. There's the simile again. Those words like and as give away that it's just a simple comparison for us to get some vision. Of what, of the lesson. Now when I say I'm, a, I'm as hungry as a bear, you have in your mind a bear that's practically starving and it's willing to eat almost anything and tear into a, a camper's trailer to get it food. And so you've got this great picture of pretty strong hunger. And we do that with a little quick comparison with those words as a bear. We don't just say I'm hungry. Now the Lord isn't just going to say, Be prepared. He's going to give us 13 verses in which He tells us to be prepared in a strong picture for us. He's going to tell us in the next 17 verses, from verses 14 through 30, be faithful. And He's going to do it with another comparison. 
Listen to these comparisons. They're powerful. And then we'll come to a prophecy. And it's a pretty plain statement of what's going to come in the future. I am sorry if you have come this morning looking for me to entertain you with what the wicks in the lamps of the two classes of virgins means. Jesus never intended for you to worry about such frivolous things. There is one lesson, and it's given to us in verse 13. This parable is about as plain as the prodigal son. Do not go into a parable like this wanting to know what the oil is. The lesson is not the oil. The lesson is, if you're not prepared when the Son of Man cometh, the door is going to be shut and it will be too late. That's the lesson. Brethren, I am creative enough that I could take this first service today and the second service and go over the details of the first 13 verses. And you might go home and say, what a pastor we have. He's able to plumb the depths of the Word of God. Well, I'm going to tell you how deep Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is. It's as deep as verse 13, and I'm not going any deeper. If I try to go deeper, it will be pure speculation because Jesus didn't tell us. Now, when Jesus tells us what the four different kinds of ground refer to, I bless and praise His holy name, and I preach those four kinds of ground. But when He tells me about a net cast into the sea that brings up fish, I do not try to distinguish between fish and mammals, or between fish and birds, or between how gills work underwater, because none of that stuff is important. The only thing you were to get from that one is, there's two kinds of fish, and the angels can tell the difference, and they're going to sever the wicked from the just. Please, do you know how many pulpits today in sincere churches will be led astray by men blowing a bunch of smoke at them by playing with the details of parables like this, and they couldn't prove it if their lives depended on it. And if I can't prove it, I'm not going to preach it. If you think you know what one of these details are that I may overlook, please come and tell me, because I'd love to learn the truth of God's Word. But when you come, be prepared for me to ask a few questions about the inconsistency that you will create within the story if you try to lay hold of any one of these details. Because I do have the questions, because I have worked this thing frontwards, backwards, and from the inside out. And the Lord doesn't want us to worry about the details. He wants you to get the lesson. And the lesson is important. Why would we crave to fuss with the details for the sheer intellectual exercise or the intellectual entertainment and not hear the lesson. The lesson is, be prepared because you do not know when the Son of Man is coming. And I am sorry that I'm not a very good entertainer, but I will have to give an account one day, as you will for listening. My account will be, did you preach my word faithfully? And I hope to be able to say, yea, Lord. You make sure that you listen faithfully by not fussing about the details and getting the lesson that is so obvious. When I say I am as hungry as a bear, are you supposed to go get an encyclopedia and look up all the features that identify a bear and separate him from a lion? Or are you just to have a picture in your mind of a creature that's very hungry? You know what my flesh does at a time like this? It's disappointed. My flesh would just love to give you something you've never heard before. But it's not in Matthew 25. When I get to Revelation, we'll do that. But we're not going to do that in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, because what is there is pretty simple. And I'm, I'm taking this long introduction so that you'll know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm also taking this long introduction so that when you read a parable, you will not get caught up in wondering, I wonder what this is. I wonder what that is. I want to tell you the replacement for Roman Catholic priests in primitive Baptist churches. It's a pastor. It's an elder, they call them. He's the replacement for the Roman Catholic priest. After hearing one typical 
primitive Baptist preacher, and there are others of other denominations that do the same thing. Take one parable apart and try to apply meaning to every single little detail. Do you know what then happens to the poor child of God when they pick up their Bible to read another parable? They're going through the whole thing wondering what each detail is, missing the lesson, and being bewildered and confused, and just closing the book. I'm not deep enough, spiritual enough, or enlightened enough to be able to figure that out. I'm going to have to go back and hear him again, instead of being able to read it for yourself. It is not that deep. I'm so thankful for the 13th verse. It tells us exactly how many feet and inches the depth is in this swimming pool. If you'll allow that metaphor. It's not a parable, because I didn't take that long telling it to you. Please understand my intent. I I, want to give you every single thing from the Word of God. I want to squeeze every drop out of Matthew 25, 1-13 that God wants for you because I ask Him to do that. I beg Him, never let me shortchange my people in what they hear, but never let me put more on the table than you intended to be there. Because then I am making it up. I cannot prove it. You cannot prove it. And you go home thinking the Word of God is beyond you and it is not. Let's read. And understand. I'm going to read these 13 verses, and I want you to think of them purely as the simile, the wedding that's taking place. Do not even think about their application. Think about the wedding. Because that's why we have all the words. He wants you to feel the horrible dilemma at the end of some foolish virgins at a wedding. Then we'll apply it. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold! The bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let's think for just a moment about a wedding by Jewish tradition. We can gather it from this passage, and we can gather it from Psalm 45, from Genesis 29, from Matthew chapter 9, and a few other places, and we don't need to go into detail, and we don't need to go look into history. We can just look at the Bible. Weddings generally took place at night. Ever wonder why Jacob couldn't figure out who he married? Weddings generally take place at night, and that's why the lamps are involved here. It was traditional for virgins to come and meet the bridegroom and his party. It was a huge celebration. And for bridegrooms to come and meet the bridegroom and his party and welcome them into the marriage supper. This particular bridegroom is late. He doesn't come when he's expected. He takes longer than they had been planning. They went to sleep because he hadn't come quickly. When the announcement was made of his arrival, the virgins went forth to meet him. They all jumped up, scurried about, got their lamps and their vessels, and went out to meet the bridegroom. The wise virgins were ready with oil and lights to meet him. The foolish virgins didn't have anything. Their lamps during the night had burned out. They had used up all their oil. The wise ones not only had their lamps, but they also had oil in vessels. They were well prepared. The foolish virgins tried to beg oil of the wise, 
But the wise would have none of that. Try to fit that into some legal scheme of salvation. While the foolish virgins went to buy oil, can they buy it? Yeah, they can buy oil. Because we're dealing with oil and lamps and a wedding. While the foolish virgins went to buy oil, the bridegroom came, arrived, and the wedding began. By the time the foolish virgins had obtained their oil and come back to the wedding place, the door had already been shut and it was too late. They bang at the door and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. That is the bridegroom. And the bridegroom said, I don't know who you are. You're not invited guests. You don't have any, you don't belong here. And kept the door shut and didn't let them in. And then Jesus Christ gives us the application of this parable. And he says again in verse 13, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. The issue here, and I've already said, if you want a two-word explanation from Matthew 25, 1 through 13, be prepared. Be prepared. You know, when I was in Boy Scouts, the Boy Scout motto is, be prepared. You know, that meant that when you went on a hike, you better have a compass, you better have a map, you better have matches, you better have a knife, and you better have a few other things that you need to survive and make your way through the woods. Well, now that's simple enough. We all understand that. But this parable, the 13, the 13 verses of it, are to be prepared because Jesus Christ is coming at a time you do not know. Notice that it says about the bridegroom, he tarried. The bridegroom is obviously Jesus Christ. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus Christ said he was when he used verse 13. He called himself the Son of Man, and it was the, son, it was the bridegroom that came and caused the consternation by five foolish virgins not being prepared. The issue is to be prepared. The issue is we don't know when He's coming. If we knew when the Lord Jesus Christ was coming, do you know that as you approach that date, you would start to take precautions to get ready for Him? Therefore, Christians would live in almost any way they wanted up until that time. But look how the Lord did it. We don't know when He's going to come. Look what it says in verse 13. Ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. If you don't know the day or the hour, then what should you do to be prepared when He does come? Always be prepared. That is the lesson. Always be prepared. The wise virgins not only had lamps, but they had vessels with oil so that they would not run out. And so we want to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ And as we progress through Matthew 25, you are going to find out more about why you want to prepare. What what we are told in this place is if you're not prepared, then it's an evidence that you are lost. And the door is going to be shut and it is over. I want to say something here. We believe in unconditional salvation. We believe that God has chosen and determined the destinies of the elect and reprobates before the world began. We believe that. But when we come into the New Testament, we find this and countless, countless passages of Scripture that speak about making sure of your eternal life, laying hold of eternal life throughout the New Testament. It speaks of, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And how you ought to give up the things of this life in order to guarantee the salvation of your soul. Now, you don't guarantee it in any legal way with God, but you can certainly guarantee it to your conscience and your soul and have the evidence of eternal life. And we are told this over and over again. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to see that it's entirely works-oriented. This is not to earn eternal life. This is to show the evidence of it. The door is shut, and the Lord says, I knew you not, to the wicked. See, we've already got Matthew chapter 7, where many are going to say, Lord, Lord, and He's going to say, I never knew you. You know that from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. The issue here is to be prepared. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. 
I can tell you this, and I have said this so many times to you, I feel redundant, but it's my job to repeat myself. One second after you meet the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming, you will wish you could go back and have this day over again. You will wish for September 20th, I mean November 20th, of the year 2005, in which your pastor preached to you from Matthew 25 about being prepared for Him. There is only one way to prepare for a test. When you take a test in school, and you sit there and feel hopeless and helpless, it's because you didn't do something. You didn't prepare. That is the only reason that ever happens. If you prepare, you can sit there and take that test and be confident about it. But what does preparation mean? It means while the test is yet a long way off, you begin preparation for it. You begin your studying process and lay out what you need to do so that by that time you are ready. Now we do not know when the Lord is coming. So do you know what that means we ought to be doing today? Laying out whatever we ought to do so that we would be ready. So that we would be confident in His appearing. So that we would delight in His coming. That there would be no shame. And that we would be found of Him in peace. Do you have any differences with anyone in this assembly? Be found of Him in peace. Be found without spot. And be found blameless. No one confessed sin. And no, nothing taining us from the world. We have rejected the world. And we repudiate it. There is only one way to do that. Some of you have learned about tests the hard way by not being prepared. Some of you have embarked on trips and forgot to take a map. And you've learned the hard way of not being prepared. We want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the first 13 verses of Matthew 25 are all about. Because once He comes, it is then too late to confess your sins. It is then too late to get rid of all the spots that the world has on you. It's too late to make peace. He's going to find you with disturbances between you and other brethren. He's going to find you spotted by the world and with blame. There's only one way for us today to commit together that the coming of Jesus Christ could occur at any time. Therefore, let us fill our vessels with oil. And the oil is simply, what is Jesus Christ going to be looking for? But that's what I'm telling you. Peace, no spots, and blameless. He's looking for a righteous life. He's looking for someone looking for His coming. Waiting for His coming. That wants to adore Him when He appears. And there's only one way to adore Him when He appears. It's to adore Him right now before He appears. Do you adore the Lord Jesus Christ right now? Do you love the things of heaven right now? Do you love righteousness? Do you hate this earth? Do you say, well, I'm going to hate the earth in that day. That will be too late in that day. He knows what you think about the earth and the world right now. Let's hate it right now. Let's be ready for His coming. The kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ's reign in the gospel dispensation beginning with John the Baptist. John the Baptist announced, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the reign of Jesus Christ over believers. In churches, out of churches, when they're between churches, it's His reign and extends all the way into heaven where He will reign completely when He will have delivered up the kingdom to God. The lesson is clear. Be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ is unknown and it could come at any time. You say, well, since our destinies have been chosen by God before the world began then we can't be shut out. That's correct. But would you tell me how you know that you were chosen as one of God's elect before the world began? That's the point. Amen. You say, well, that's, that makes it almost sound like he's trying to frighten us. You got, you got a good picture of the parable. Right. You got a good picture. You know what the Apostle Paul said? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And do you know what context he said that in? For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. Do you know what Paul said? He said, I, 
I have counted all things but loss, that I might be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of, in Jesus Christ, which is of God, that I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul labored for those things. He pressed for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. Do you know what that prize was? That the door would still be open when he was there. He didn't earn his way through that door, but he guaranteed it to himself that that door would be open for him. And that's why when he got to the end of his life, he said, I know, I know that there is a crown of righteousness awaiting me. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already said. He identifies himself. The virgins are professing Christians in his churches who are planning on the wedding. Now there's a whole lot of pagans that aren't virgins at all. Because they're not in any church or related or connected to Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form. These ten virgins are those that are in, that appear to be in his kingdom. Five are wise and five are foolish. Five are allowed in, five are not. Five prepared themselves and lived holy lives. Five just came and sat in the pews, dozed, slept, daydreamed, had squabbles with others, loved the things of the world, and didn't love for Jesus Christ. The door will shut on them and keep them out. We will not have such ones in heaven other than those exceptions that God Himself makes. Because there's no evidence of it. If they're not living a life that shows a vessel filled with oil by loving the Lord Jesus Christ, being found in peace, spotless from the world and without blame. The wedding is our Lord's second coming. Jesus is not going to come at a time we are expecting Him, so we have to be ready at all times. In this particular case, He took long enough for all the virgins to be sleeping. This parable is not a commendation of sleeping Christians. And if you want to start going after the details, that's where you're going to end up. Because sleeping Christians get in. The parable doesn't have anything to do with that. The sleeping is just that the Lord took long enough that it was so long they couldn't pick a point in time and have Him come right then or they would have been awake. He took long enough so that they lost their focus on any point in time because they never had one because we don't know the day or the hour so that He came at a time unexpected. And that's the whole issue. And that's what you're going to remember when you see the Lord Jesus Christ. That you did not know He was coming. There is only there is only one way to be ready for a test. If you know that you have a test coming in any class, there is only one way to be ready for it. Start studying now. There is only one way to be ready for the next Bible quiz. Start studying now. There is only one way to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Start preparations now. And how do we do that? The first thing we do is repent for being so wrapped up, caught up, tied up in this world and set our affection on things above, begging Him to forgive us and to pursue those things that He exalts in His Word, like praise. Did we find a lot about praise in Psalm 147 this morning? A lot about thanksgiving? We should be full of praise and thanksgiving. If you're not full of praise and thanksgiving, the door is going to shut on you. And it will not matter what you say. You may have been able to talk your way out of trouble with your little mommy, but the Lord Jesus Christ is not your little mommy. The Lord Jesus Christ is not like any school teacher that you ever met that you could talk your way out of a poor performance on a test. The door will shut and the words will be, I never knew you. This is pure Christianity. I am coming again at a time that I am not going to tell anyone, be ready always. I'm sorry it's not entertaining, but I'm not very sorry. I'm praying that you'll be convicted and I will be convicted to make sure that we are always ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Always at peace, always spotless, always blameless. It's achievable quite easily. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I read about blameless men and women in the Word of God. We can do it by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and by listening to a sermon like this and wanting to be ready and not have that door shut on you because you have deceived yourself by professing to be something that you are not. The real evidence of a child of God is living a holy and righteous life because that new man inside of you should be screaming to have something in the outside. 
wise virgins are born-again saints who live holy and spiritual lives looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. The foolish virgins are mere professors who presume on God's grace and live carnally. Jesus Christ rejects them and they're shut out of heaven. The lesson here matches lessons we've seen elsewhere. We saw a wise builder and a foolish builder. The wise builder built his house on the rock. The winds and rains came and that house stood because it was built on a rock. The rock were the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he concluded the Sermon on the Mount. The foolish man built his house on sand. The same winds and storm arose, and that house fell, and the fall of it was great, because he did not build his life on the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have taught you about that passage. That passage is not a practical lesson. That passage is of your house standing the storm of the final day of judgment, because that is the context. The previous verse before that little explanation begins is this. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. That's the difference between the wise and the foolish. That was a wise and a foolish builder. These are wise, this is wise and foolish virgins. The day is coming in which it will be too late to do anything about your soul to prepare for the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we believe the potter determined our destinies, the whole Bible speaks of seeking that salvation for the comfort of your own soul and the assurance of your own faith and to be looking forward to Him coming confidently in faith and full of hope. And hope in the Bible is not a, a mere wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is patiently waiting for something as we're taught in Romans chapter 8. How should you live knowing that everything here is going fully away? The way we saw earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3. Be diligent. Notice what Peter said. And he said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to stir you up about these things. Be diligent to be found in peace. Are you totally at peace? In your home, out of your home. With your more extended family and with this church. With your neighbors, with your employers, with your colleagues at work. Are you at peace? Are you spotless from the world and are you blameless? Are all your sins confessed? Or do you have some that are not confessed? You do not want to meet the Lord Jesus Christ that way. Since we've been invited to the greatest event in history, and that's to be a son of God, it ought to purify our lives. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. That's Matthew 25, 1 through 13. If you get distracted, and the devil loves distractions, and you can get distracted even in the Word of God. I wonder what the oil is. I wonder what the lamp is. I wonder what the vessel is. Listen, if you can figure them out, you've gone way beyond me, and I'll tell you one other being you've gone way beyond, and that's the Holy Ghost. Because verse 13 is inspired by the Holy Ghost, and it tells us exactly what you ought to walk away with. Be prepared, because you don't know when it's going to happen. I've done my best to tell you what it means and and get your attention that you will think about it. I wish that teachers handed out syllabi, that's plural for syllabus, syllabus of those papers you get at the front end of a course that tells you when the tests are going to be. Now, what if a teacher told you, my tests are all surprise tests? Guess what you're going to have to do in that class? Instead of believing in fire escape salvation, you're going to have to be ready all the time, aren't you? You know, if salvation is just dependent on you uttering a little word to Jesus Christ, I guess you can wait until the last hour, can't you? But see, we don't know when Jesus Christ is coming, so that means we have to be prepared all the time. And I don't even like to use the word have to be. You should want to be prepared all the time. You should be looking forward to the coming of your Lord. Looking for Him. What did Second Peter say? I think he stuck another word in there along with looking. Do you remember a controversy you had with Second Peter chapter 3? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We should want it to come quickly because we're ready. Do you know what kind of a character it takes to want the Lord to come sooner than later? That's because we're living holy lives. Have you ever been so close to the Lord that you said, Lord, give me the big one right now. And I don't mean that foolishly, and it almost sounds foolishly, but do you know what I mean? 
You say, Lord, I could die right now and walk straight into your presence. I wouldn't have to walk very far because you're right there. You're so close to him. Do you know why you lose that? You give it up. He doesn't give it up. Once in a while, he may tease you a little bit to see if you'll pursue him. Most of the time, you have separated between you and your God. You have, you have dealt, you have dabbled in a little bit of sin. You've dabbled in the world. You've laid down your Bible reading. You've laid down your praying. You've laid down your confessing. You've quenched the Spirit. You've grieved the Spirit. You can get it back. Repent. Confess. And do the first works. It's that simple. Let's move on. Verse 14. I'm going to read. Follow with me. The second parable. Matthew 25, 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance." But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. I hope that you followed along with me, listening to the parable, the comparison, the as situation. Think about a householder who had lots of assets And he's taking a trip into a far... Forget the application for a moment. Think about the householder. He has a lot of assets, and he commits those assets to his servants based on the abilities they have. Every human being is different than every other human being. All men are not created equal. The Bible has never taught that. That is not from the Bible, and we don't believe that. God makes every one of us different. We should say all men are created unequal, because every man is different. Now, I know the context that they, our founding fathers meant that, and even in that context, they were wrong. But anyway, back to being created unequal. It says, according to their several ability. You know, one man got five talents. Now, please, this is where it's important to read the proverb for what the Lord, the parable for what the Lord intended. The word talent does not mean your ability to do something. The word talent is a unit of money. The word talent here is money. His estate. He committed five talents, or let's say a million dollars worth of money, to one 
of his servants and $400,000 worth to another servant and $200,000 worth to a third servant. Based on their ability, he felt they could take care of that much of his estate. And he was a hard man. He was, an, he was a, a successful businessman. And he expected a return on all of his assets. That's why he said, I expect to reap where I haven't sowed. Do you know what that's called? That's called a return on capital. Not a return on effort, but a return on capital. He expected interest. And he was gone a long time. Now, when you're gone a long time, that does something to assets. Either they grow greatly or they're shriveled to nothing. Because it's the time factor of money that either makes it grow or shrink. You say, how can it do either or? If you have it at interest, money can grow to be a huge sum. If it's allowed at interest for a long time. If you don't put money at interest, inflation and other causes will deplete it and the purchasing power will be nil when you finally get it back. And that's the story. When the Lord came back, He made a reckoning. He wanted to know what had been done with His estate while He was gone. He was the Lord and they were the servants. The servant that had been given five talents came and said, Lord, look, I've got ten. I've got ten to give you. I've doubled what you gave me. And the man with two said the same thing. And the Lord commended them both equally because he had, he had assigned that money amount to each one based on their ability. So each man's faithfulness was equal to the other. Then a man came and said, I was so intimidated by what you expect from me that I went and hid mine in the ground and here it is. And the Lord of that servant said, you are a wicked servant. If you knew I was a hard man and expected a lot of return, then why didn't you put it out for interest? So that when I came, I would have got more than the one talent I gave you. Take that talent away from him and give it to that worthy man that's got ten and take that servant and cast him out. He's not going to be any servant of mine. Great story. That's a parable. Now what's its lesson? Be faithful. The lesson of this one is be faithful. The word talent is not your talents. Do you know where the little drummer boy came from? He read Matthew 25, 14 through 30, and the only thing he could do is play a drum in a rock band, and so he played his little drum for Jesus. I played my drum for Him. See, God doesn't care about your drumming ability that much. The, the word talent here is not talent in the sense of ability to do something. It's a monetary measure. Please, please, before you get the bottom line of the parable, we want to understand the parable. And understanding the parable means we understand talent to mean money and investment and getting as much return as possible. Because this Lord is an austere and severe man. But what did that, what did that one servant say? I was just intimidated. I can't do it. It's too hard for me. Did the Lord say, I'm sorry for putting such a burden on you? Or did the Lord already only give that man one talent because he knew he had low ability? I want to say something to every one of you. Every one of you men and every one of you women have only been given what God knows you are able to do. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. Does that sound like He's given you talents according to your several ability? What's the application here? To be faithful in all that the Lord's given us. Because the Son of Man has gone away for a long time and He's coming again for a reckoning. Do you know what the reckoning is called in the Bible? We shall give an account of ourselves to Him. Every good thing and every evil thing that we have done. The Lord is going to be asking you about everything that He has given you. That is everything by the grace of your spiritual conversion and everything by the grace of His providential blessing in your life. You are going to be held accountable for all of it. And have you got a return on it? He has given you... Just think of all the things He's given you. He's given you health. He's given you life. He's given you money, time, 
a job, parents, children, wife, church, gifts, knowledge, opportunities, teachers, grace, conviction, and even the online Bible program. Every single thing that you can think of in your life that enables you to serve God and to serve His saints, God has given you that and you're going to have to give an account of it. Every man in here is going to have to answer, how did you take care of the woman that I put on loan to you for 50 years? Did you lead her in spiritual righteousness? Did you lead her in godliness? Did you love her? Did you take care of her? Every woman's going to have to answer, I gave you to a man to be a helper to him. Did you help him? The Lord's going to say, I expected some return. I not only gave you a good husband or I gave you a good wife, I gave you good children. I gave you a church where the truth was taught. I gave you knowledge. I convicted you. I came after you numerous times and convicted you. Have you brought forth fruit based on what I gave you? Have you got me a return from my investment that I left in your hands? All of it. The parable does not limit it in any way. We are accountable for everything God's given us. Every single thing. And this is very sober. Be faithful in everything God's given us. He owns the universe, but He's given small little portions of it to each of us. We're going to give an account. I'm 48. Do you know how old I wish I was? Eight. Show me an eight-year-old in here. You're eight. That's good. I wish I was eight. Do you know what that means? It means if I listened and paid attention, I might give a better account for the next 40 years than I could give right now for the last 40 years. Does anyone else in here agree with that? That you wish you were eight? But we're not eight. Because the bridegroom is about to come, isn't he? What we learned in the first parable is being backed up in the second of what he's going to be looking for. Everything God's given you, how faithful have you been in using it to give Him a return on what He's given you? The world never gives Him a return. The world consumes it. They never thank Him for it. They never do anything that pleases God. God is not in all their thoughts. But how much is He in our thoughts? Do you go to work for Him? Do you serve your master for Him? Do you serve your family for Him? Do you use your money for Him? Do you get excited about that first check that you get to write every pay period if you're a Christian when you write it to the Lord? And I don't care where you give it as long as you're giving it to the Lord. Does that excite you with your money? Your time? Does the Lord get the first allocation of your best time? When He convicts you, do you do something with that conviction? How long does conviction last? when you don't do anything with it? Does it disappear rather quickly? Does it dissipate like a vapor? But when you have that conviction, if you operate with it, does it give you strength to go forward? Is the, is the Lord giving you every little nudge that you could possibly need to do what He wants you to do? That's, a, that's something He get everything He's given us. I'm not going to limit this to piano playing and call on some of you to sign up at the local Christian college to learn how to play the piano, to play some musical instrument in the house of God. I'm not going to abuse this passage like it's been abused so many times. I already gave you my little drummer boy example. This is everything God's given you because He has told you how to take care of what He's given you. Did the, does the Bible say He took an, a rib out of Adam and with that He made a woman and brought her unto the man? Does that sound like a loan to you? You're going you're gonna to give an account of that. All of our time. Everything I've said. Lord, help us to be faithful. What is the two-word summary of verses 14 through 30? Be faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you back off, if you back off of your duties because you're intimidated, because He wants you to reach a certain level of performance, you are a wicked and a foolish servant. You're wicked and slothful. It's not Him. It's you. How can you blame God? I can't do it. When you say, I can't do it, you're blaming God that He gave you too much of His estate for your ability. But God never overgave. 
There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. You can do it. You can do everything that God requires of you. Do not bark against the Lord that gave you the things He has. Just go do them. How does interest work? Do, does, does, do five talents become ten talents overnight? Do they become ten talents in a month? Tell me how long the Lord was gone. A long time. A long time. How does interest work in a long time? A very small amount per day. A very small amount. Can you all do a very small amount every day in the things that God has given us? Over time, they accumulate to be, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's when we just go through life and say, I'll do it tomorrow. Well, that's no interest for today. If you say, I'll do it tomorrow today, I can tell you what you'll say tomorrow about the next day and about that day. There'll be no interest, no interest, no interest, no interest, and all you're going to have is what God gave you. You will not have got Him a return. Be, be faithful. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. This is no parable. This is a prophecy of what you are going to experience. Let me read it again. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungred, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal." The sheep and the goats, as you can tell, in verse 32 it uses the word as because it's got a short simile within the prophecy. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming and He is going to sit on His throne. We can call it the great white throne judgment of God, but the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on His throne and we shall give an account of our lives. And He is going to say to those on His right hand who are His elect, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Here's the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because you took such good care of me when you had opportunity. And look at the righteous. When did we ever do anything for you, Lord? What a difference. Let me just stick this in. What do the wicked say according to Matthew 7? 
Oh, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? That is a wicked man that wants to talk about anything he has done. The righteous stand there and say, Lord, when did we ever do anything like that? And he'll say, when you did it, to one of the least of these my brethren. And who are his brethren? The sheep that are his right hand. One of the least of these my brethren. Be prepared. Be faithful. Be loving servants. Loving servants. Do you know I read this whole passage and I've read it a few times. I've read this whole passage and I can't find where those getting into the kingdom and those going to hell, the difference was because they didn't invite Jesus into their heart. I can't find that. I can't find making a decision for Jesus. I can't find baptism. I can't find faith. I can't find anything else. Do you know why? Because the great evidence of the New Testament is loving other people. It's not faith. Devils have faith. Devils do not love. They are filled with hatred and malice their entire existence. Love is the great grace of the Christian life, and love is the great evidence that you have eternal life. If you go to 1 John 3, 4, 5, what do you think it tells you there is the great evidence of passing from death into life? Because we love the brethren. And here it tells us one of the least of the brethren is what you ought to be interested in. Is that the greatest system of religion you've ever heard? Where everyone is told the evidence of eternal life is by taking care of one of the least of the brethren? Does that sound like a church where love would be equally spread? Maybe it would be a little unequal. And that the uncomely members get the greater degree of love. This is the most magnificent doctrine of salvation and doctrine of how people are to get along and the greatest religion ever. All others are no religion at all. This is light, and they are all darkness. This is not how you earn heaven. This is the character of the righteous. And the character of the righteous is they love and they serve. That does not mean they come and just do menial tasks around the church. That means they love people. They love people. They love the least of his brethren. They are concerned and care about his brethren. Notice every one of the six conditions. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. Now Jesus said all six of those things because at this time, for those saints, as soon as the gospel was preached, they began suffering persecution and they literally were hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, in prison, and sick. They did not have normal care. And the New Testament is glorious in its description of a Spirit-filled church. When we go to Acts chapter 2, what do we find? They had all things common. There was no selfishness at all. Service and care about one another reigned in the early church. And we want it to reign in this church, and I want it to reign in your life. This is true history of what is going to happen to this world. The Son of Man is coming in His glory with all His holy angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God. And what's the vengeance of them that know not God? I'm going to tell you. I tell it to you in different ways from different passages. Right here, you're selfish. Selfish. You're a loner. You're a goat. There is no such thing as a loner in the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. If a man say he loved God, how can he say he loved God and not love his brother who is beloved of God and is also a son of God? Do you visit those that are sick? Do you write and encourage? Do you speak to them? Do you provoke? Do you comfort? Do you warn? Do you care? Do you get involved? Do you get out of your little routine? Do you leave your little life, your little worthless life, and get involved in someone else's life? This is what the Son of Man is calling upon us to do. Be prepared for my coming. Be faithful in everything that I have given you. And be a loving servant 
to all of your brethren. This is Matthew 25. Because I'm coming, and the difference between the character of those on my right hand that get heaven, and the character of those on my left that get hell, is the way they treated others. Much could be said. But we are at the end of our time. When it says the Son of Man shall come and gather all nations before Him, and He's going to separate them, the one from the other, of course it's going to be determined based on the book of life. But the character of those on His right, He's going to commend them for that character. He's going to say, you took me in when I was a stranger. He's not going to say you've earned your way into heaven because you were hospitable to strangers. He's going to say, you took me in when I was a stranger. And they're going to say, we, we never did that. Oh, yes. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Because that's the character of the righteous. The character of the righteous are giving, selfless, outgoing people who get out of themselves and go do things for other people. If you're too shy to speak, then write an email. If your fingers don't work, then buy yourself the little program that you can speak and the keyboard will do it for you. We'll figure out a way for you because there's a way. This is not a burden. This is a privilege. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This is how the church of God is to act together. Every face and every two pairs of hands that I saw on Friday wanting to help the days move, I knew where I was going on Sunday morning. It blessed my heart. Every one of you that could have been there and wasn't there, you should ask yourself, why wasn't I there? I wasn't there yesterday morning. There were many that were here yesterday morning. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty that doesn't belong, deserve to feel guilty. But there are selfish souls that all they can do is think about their own little worthless lives. The way to be happy is to get outside yourself and do something for someone else. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It will change your life. It will give you light in your soul. And it will give you the evidence of eternal life. Are you always involved in public opportunities to serve others? Are you regularly doing private acts of service to others? You know, some of you I hear about on a regular basis of things that you're not telling me that you're doing. I love getting surprised that way of little acts of service done among each other in the congregation. There are some that are doing it all the time. There are some that never do it. Because they, their mind is not even capable of getting outside themselves to think about others. They are so wrapped up in their little set of problems. We've all got a set of problems. The Lord doesn't care about your set of problems. Cast your care upon Him and go do something for someone else. You'll get better instantly. Cast your care upon Him and go do something for someone else, giving praise to God and thanksgiving to Him through Jesus Christ on your way there. You'll be happier for it. What about moving help? Hospitality. When was the last time you had the least of these, your brethren, in your house? When was the last time you encouraged someone? You went to them and you wouldn't allow them to talk about you You just wanted to encourage them and what they're facing in their life. When did you visit someone, exhort someone, supply the need of someone in private? When did you warn someone else? When was the last time you considered someone else and the predicament they might be in and then purposed to do something about it? When was the last time you pursued another person and went after them? Some people are hard to get to know. Some people are hard to even serve. So you've got to pursue them. This is the character of the righteous. Brethren, if you do not have that character, it is because you are selfish. You are selfishly neglecting others. And there there is no place in the kingdom of heaven for selfish loners. The kingdom of heaven is servants. Jesus Christ is the great example to us. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. And He calls us to be servants like He was a servant for us. Love is the great evidence of eternal life. It's far beyond faith. You want faith that proves eternal life? It's faith that worketh by love. That's Galatians 5, 6. That's faith that does something in love to someone else. It is so easy to sit back and say, I believe in God. 
I believe in everything this church stands for. I love the doctrine of predestination. Well, you've got, you worked your way up to the level of a devil. You say, I believe in baptism by immersion. So does the devil. You don't think he's a sprinkler, do you? He just convinces them to be sprinklers. He knows immersion is the truth. You've worked yourself up to the level of a devil. But here's the verse, faith that worketh by love. Faith that does something, and it does it in love, and love is doing something for someone else selflessly. Wow, now that's a different standard, isn't it? The devil hasn't served anyone selflessly in a long time. Over 6,000 years at least. And that is the great grace of the Christian life. Be prepared. The Son of Man is going to come at a time that you are not expecting. The moment you see Him, you will wish for this day back. Be faithful in all that God has given you and get a return from those things for the glory of God because you are going to give an account. There's going to be a reckoning and it's going to be very objective. He's going to want to know if the gifts He gave you, you have got a return on them. And the rule is this. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And be a loving servant. Because that is the character of those on His right hand when He does come. When He does come, and what a powerful sovereign He is. To my right, to my left, right, left, right, left. He doesn't ask. He separates. And He's going to say to those on His right that they have been loving servants in their lives because that's the character of the elect. And He's going to say to those on the left that they were selfish, neglectful, hateful people. Fought, argued, disagreed, yelled, got angry, didn't care, didn't visit, didn't think about others. Were selfishly wrapped up in their own little worthless lives. And they will go into everlasting fire and the righteous into life eternal. Brethren, Be prepared, be faithful, be a loving servant. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. May the Lord Jesus Christ be praised, and may we be diligent to be found of Him in peace, without spot, and without blame. Amen.